This talk is called, Oh, You Know, The Afterlife. So for Jesus, Jesus didn't just teach moral truths saying, hey, you should do this. Did you notice that? That his messages are connected, his moral teachings are connected to a historical belief. Namely, his whole, all of his teachings about how to live are oriented in a, in, a, in a conviction that the future is headed towards the kingdom of God. And because the future is headed towards the kingdom of God, all of life now, here and now, is affected by what we know is coming then and there. Actually, it's more like then and here, but the future in God's kingdom. That be, because Carl has an eternal destiny in God's kingdom, how Carl lives today should line up and arrange itself toward that. And that's every teaching of Jesus. Seriously, just go look through the sayings of Jesus and see. No, I'm not talking to you right now. I better turn you to silent. She did that the other day with me and Sherry. We said, we were saying something about God that was confusing. And Siri said, I can't answer that. And we were both like, neither can we. (laughs) Until I leave this location. Thank you. You get what I'm saying? Almost, like almost, I don't want to say all, that's maybe too strong, but almost all of Jesus' teachings are not simply him saying, here's how you should live. They're him saying, in light of God's kingdom, here's how we live. So I once had a friend ask me, if, if there were no afterlife, uh, would you still follow Jesus. And I thought, first of all, I don't know how to understand Jesus. Like 90% of what he's saying doesn't even make sense without the concept of an eternal destiny in God's great kingdom. And so at first, it's okay, well, who would even Jesus be? He would become something, he would, he would, you would take his teachings and they would no longer be about the redemption of the world. And he would no longer be a savior. He would just be a smart person who had a lot of moral insight. And I probably wouldn't bother. Because when I'm dead, I'm dead. And that's, and screw it, honestly. So if I'm happy now, great. If I'm not, well, at least this won't take too long. So I didn't really have a very positive accounting uh, of what I, I just, because, you know, remember Paul saying, if it's only for this life that we hope in Christ, we're actually to be pitied. He doesn't say, if, if, even if there's no afterlife, guys, it's still worth it because we lived a good and virtuous moral life. Yay! He says the opposite. He says, actually, if this thing ain't, if, if there ain't rewards coming, if there ain't an afterlife, if there ain't a great reversal, if there isn't a, a massive uh, restoration of justice and, and you know, vindication and validation and a setting of things right, why are we suffering like this? Let's get out. Let's not do this. Let's just go get drunk. Let's just go get an island. Go on a, go go to an island somewhere. I don't know. Sit on a beach. Why try? Why expend yourself for the sake of the poor? Why worry about justice? Why worry about the widow and the orphan in their distress? Why pl- why why pull people out of the flames of hell if when you're dead you're dead? What are we doing? Let's stop all the sacrificing and struggling 
You know? Let's just not be around people or only be around people we like from now on instead of love everybody. Let's, shoof, that would radically change. For Paul, at least, it would radically change his life priorities if you take away the kingdom. My friend asked me the afterlife, but I think it's so much more than afterlife. It's, it's, the, it's the eternal reality of life in a body on planet Earth. And new heavens, new earth. So, okay, what was the first passage? I think I said, Carolyn, turn to Matthew 5. So if you could read just the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 11 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you hear it? Do you hear how he's saying... In this life, there's this cost. But, but don't be all discouraged by the cost. You're blessed. When? Where? In your future, in God's great kingdom. And I'm, and that's just, I'm just picking one little chunk out. Again, look at Jesus' teachings through the lens of you have an eternal destiny in God's great kingdom. Therefore, arrange your life now to maximize your joy, then. If it ain't true, then just focus on maximizing your joy now. But since it is true, be willing to sacrifice and suffer now to maximize your joy then. We're we're to leverage this life against eternity. Right? And, And when bad things happen to Christians... A lot of us are so devastated and confused. How could God allow this? And I'm not saying we need to be mean to people at all, but one of the most loving things we can do for each other is to bring in an eternal perspective. And yes, we can sympathize. Yes, we can cry alongside. But let's not stop there. Otherwise, we won't uh, be anchoring people in truth. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. Okay. Uh, What was the next passage? I think I said um, Paul's thought consistently presents us as suffering for the kingdom now but being rewarded later. So 2 Thessalonians, basically just read chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, and it's intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us. 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? The whole focus is Jesus is about to return and reward your faithfulness and punish those who are rejecting and resisting him. The whole, the whole focus is, is like, it's leaning. It's, it's leaning into the future. It's not saying, oh, you know, my life's hard. I guess God can't be good. It's no, no, no. We're in a battle. We're headed somewhere. And if we pay a high price now, it's not a loss. Even if it's, if it's just a cup of cold water in his name, surely I tell you, you will not lose your reward. Reward. This whole thing is focused. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. That's, that verse is further down the list. It's Romans chapter 8. I don't even consider the sufferings of this life worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed. And here was my thought as I read Paul in Romans 8. Whoa, I think we need an upgrade. Because I'm pretty sure we consider the sufferings of this life very, very significant. We don't consider the glory about to be revealed nearly enough. That we ought to spend more time considering the glory of God, the beauty of God, the worth of Jesus, the value of his gospel, where we're headed, what we'll be doing forever and ever and ever. And let that reality become so big in our hearts and in our minds that it puts the things we're going through into a way different perspective. Right? right? So your Uncle Anthony, he started his message with the best three-minute heaven sermon I ever heard in my life. <clears throat> my brain went nutty. He said, you know how the presence falls when you really pray? Not like, not like you know, praying for the food, but when you really pray, you feel God's presence? He said, she's not feeling God's presence, guys. She's seeing God. She's, and, and he just talked about the reality she's experiencing. She, I think she's in her 50s. Mike, her husband, sitting in the front row, kids all across the pews, young, young, like, I don't mean little kids, but I mean kids in their 20s, 30s, in my mind, way, way young, like, and, and he's, and Anthony says, if she could come back, she'd be torn. On the one hand, she loves you so much. On the other hand, oh, this is better. And, and just, just simple, that's such basic stuff, right? That's simple stuff, basic stuff. But is it real in our heart? Is it big enough in my understanding that the sufferings of this life aren't even worth comparing to it yet? If not, the way to get there is to take it in, take scripture in and eat it, and talk to God about it, and make it of my meditation until Holy Spirit actually fashions and forms it as a reality on the inside of me. So I know 
what my hope is, and I can live by it. And he will. He will do that for us. I've been talking to God about this. Make heaven so real for me, God. Make heaven so that, that song we sang a few weeks back said it so perfectly. Close, I want to be close, close by your side so heaven is real and death is a lie. And I forgot that line was in there. So when I got to it, I just, I just about couldn't say it because it's something I've been praying about for the last several years. Asking God, well, I started wrong. I started asking God, what's wrong with me? Why do I have all these doubts? That's the wrong way to pray. The right way to pray is to say, fashion this in me, form this in me. It's just like the wrong way to repent is, oh, I'm so terrible, instead of going, okay, the fact that I'm convicted means you're about to give me an upgrade. Now I'm going to aim my faith at this, and I expect increase. I expect transformation. The fact that I'm convicted of my language means you're giving me an, uh, an increase in my language. If you're convicting me and I'm greedy, you're about to give me an increase in generosity. You're right. If I feel convicted of my cowardice, you're, giving, you're about to give me an increase in, in the boldness, yep, in the, in, the, in the courage that comes from genuinely loving. So, basic Christian doctrine says that everybody, everybody, everybody who ever lived, everybody who ever lived is going to stand before Jesus and give an accounting of their, our life. Everybody. Romans 2, verses 5 through 16, Rusty. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law will be justified. When Gentiles who don't possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having a law, are a law unto themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. On the day when, according to my gospel... That's interesting. The idea of a judgment day for everybody is a part of Paul's essential 101 class on the gospel. Every single person will give an account and stand before Jesus to those who do evil, punishment. To those who continue in doing good, reward. That sounds so... Some people go, oh, well, that sounds like salvation by works. No, it's saying... If you have faith, you're going to bear good fruit, and there will be a reward for that. If you don't have faith, that will bear real bad fruit, and there will be consequences for that. Jesus will simply expose the reality of what your life was made of, what my life was made of. Just because we ain't saved by good works doesn't mean we're saved without them. But here's, here's my point. Paul's, Paul's really clear on this. What we do here matters for 
ever. And it's so stinking significant that he's actually committed his whole life to getting this message of Jesus to as many people as he possibly can to bring as many people to the right side of eternity as he possibly can. There's, there's, he has skin in the game. I remember the very first time that, that Brian Connolly came, he said that he was getting up at like four in the morning and begging God for a revelation of hell because if it's real, he wants it to be so real to him that his life shows that he believes in it and he's urgent about rescuing people from it. Because we say we believe a lot of things that we don't believe. Your life shows what you really believe. Your doctrine shows what you claim to believe. Your life shows what you do believe. So if you believe in heaven and if you believe in hell and if you believe the cross is the difference maker and your relationship to Jesus is the difference maker, it looks like something when you're walking down a busy street. It looks like something when you're in relationship with people you care about. It looks like something, you know, it, it, it takes a shape. If you knew there was a, 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 an injured dog in the road and you didn't do anything, I'd say you're a weird person. If you knew there were, was an injured child in the road and you didn't do anything, I'd say you were a, a very bad person. Oh, yeah. Now, by extension... If you think, didn't do anything and there's an injured pet or an animal in the road, look, there's something really, really wrong. Yeah, I agree with that. Carl was like, hey. But you hear what I'm saying, right? It's one thing to claim, I believe, I believe this. It's another thing to believe it. You can't just separate, the, like marriage. You can't take the Christian view of marriage and it, this is what Christians believe, how marriage is supposed to operate. For Paul, it's not about how marriage is supposed to operate. It's, it's about both of them are standing before Jesus and both of them are to live out the sacrificial, self-giving, other-centered love of Jesus. Why? Because they both, they both live before Jesus. They're both going to give an account to Jesus. It's not even about the other person or themselves. It's actually all about pleasing and walking before Jesus. At, at our wedding, I, we sang about um, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I wanted Tim and Carrie's wedding to be 100% fixated on the real wedding, the, the eternal wedding to come. like Because I understand the sacrament of what we were doing, so I wanted to make it as explicit as I could. And I couldn't button my shirt, but I could lead those songs. That's so funny. I, I straight up couldn't button my shirt. I, I, nothing's working. Put my shirt on. I can't do it. But you put that guitar in my hands and I could sing. That's weird. So the biblical understanding of the flow of history culminates in the coronation of Jesus. And every single person who ever lived will have to acknowledge Jesus or get to acknowledge Jesus, one of those two. Some will will acknowledge him unwillingly and some will acknowledge him so happily, so joyfully. Yeah, dude, some of us are going to dive on the ground with so much joy and, and other people are going to be on the ground with fear. But here's, the, here's sort of the, the Bible's order of events. See if you've read the same Bible as me. There's this life. Then there's the return of Jesus. Then when Jesus returns, there's the resurrection of the dead. And then there's the final judgment. And then there's what you and I refer to as 
heaven and hell. You with me? Okay, I'm going to read something to you. I know this is very scripture heavy tonight, and I'm not doing near as much preaching as usual. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Who inherits things, by the way? Inherit the kingdom. prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I am an eternal being with a destiny in God's great kingdom. Yeah, and the goal, the goal, Carl, is that you should have more and more trouble sleeping the older you get because you're just too dang excited. I've prayed that. I've prayed for that. God, as I get older, let me get more and more excited. Because this, I want this to be so real. Because how dumb would it be for us to sacrifice our whole lives for this Jesus and live in fear and uncertainty and die in questions and doubts? That, that would, what a waste. It makes no sense for us to be rooted in trying to please him without being rooted in the hope he's offering us is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so then he says, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when? When was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you as a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when? Was it that you were sick or in prison and we visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on his left, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Just try try to take that that teaching and, and, and separate out and go, well, here is just a simple moral teaching. And even if there's no afterlife, it's telling us we should feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit people in prison and take good care of the sick. Look, we already, humans already know we should be doing that. Doesn't everybody on the whole planet know that the, the deepest moral truth that there is, is love? 
Well, I personally feel like that's the intuition that God gives even Gentiles who don't have the law, is that love is always right, and whatever erodes love is always wrong. But my point is this. All of his sayings are oriented towards you have an eternal destiny in God's great kingdom. Arrange your life here to maximize your joy then and there. I don't think you can get away from it in your New Testament. It's in Peter. It's in Paul. It's in James. It's in Hebrews. It's in everything Jesus said. It's in the book of Revelation. Hard core. Okay, we call it heaven. We say we're going to go to heaven when we die. But the Bible really doesn't talk about going to heaven, does it? The Bible talks about the earth being restored and your body being raised and then God living on earth with you in a world that's been cleansed of all sin and anything evil. And that's heaven. Yeah, yeah. That means not just planet earth made new, but everything in the entire physical universe made new. See what I mean? Literally all the, all the parts of this whole physical universe have been affected by the curse. And it's all going to be made brand new. And the dwelling of God will actually... like So, so right now, God's will is not being done on earth. His will is being done in the third heaven, but not in the second and first heaven. And the second and first heaven are going to be aligned. Correct. But, but heaven's not some place we're going to fly away to, at least not forever. Hey, Tim, can you back up a little bit? You got me lost there on the first, second, and third. Okay. I'm like, the first heaven is where the birds, the first heaven is where the birds fly. Okay. Second heaven is what, where the stars are, what they would have viewed as where the angels are. And the third heaven is where God dwells. Okay. And when we pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're, we're not saying all the angels are per- currently submitted to you, but we are saying where you live in unapproachable light, your will's done. And we want your will done here on earth. And when it is, when he, re- when he raises us from the dead, gives us glorified bodies, and when he, after the judgment, after this sheep and the goat scene... Right then heaven will be on earth. And I'll be able to not die. I'll be able to not grow old. I'll be, I think I'll be able to fly, but whatever. <laughs> You're talking about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven? Shaped like a Rubik's cube? I always take those as metaphors personally. But having said that, all right, I'm going to keep going and just leave that in the, in the mystery box for now. What we call heaven, the Bible typically talks about as creation, fall, redemption, new creation. What we are looking forward to as heaven, the Bible would more call new creation. The book of Acts calls it the restoration of all things. That Jesus is right now in heaven until the restoration of all things. Now, phrases like that are exciting. The restoration of all things. And then they know that's going to happen when he, when he comes back. I, I've decided to stop telling people that I don't believe in the rapture because they get super confused by that, right? Because they, they're going, wait a minute, you don't believe Jesus is coming back? And I'm going, no, my hope is Jesus coming back. What are you talking about? I don't believe he's going to take the Christians away from planet Earth and then just go, sucks to be you, and then leave, you know, where are we going then? 
My vision is he comes back, we rise to meet him in the air, and then he lands and it's over. History's done. We're finished. Judgment time. Sheep and the goats time. Heaven and hell time. New creation time. So now I should just tell people I totally believe in the rapture because that's what they think of as the rapture. They think of meeting the Lord in the air is the rapture. So I'm like, fine, I believe in that. Oh, my goodness, Tim. <laughs> my, my brain's going... <laughs> too much, too fast. Okay, so what we call heaven, the Bible calls the restoration of all things. What we call hell, the Bible actually calls the lake of fire. That, doesn't, that hasn't happened yet. The lake of fire has not happened yet. Hades has happened, but not the lake of fire. The lake of fire is after the resurrection and the final judgment. And the book of Revelation calls that the second death. Right? Your body dies. Now you're waiting judgment. Then Jesus returns. Everybody rises from the dead. Here comes the big actual judgment day. And then it's sheep. And then it's goats. And then it's lake of fire and redeemed creation. And that's the second death. The real death. Not the death of the body. The death of the soul. And then we get into questions that uh, people say, oh, do people in hell, are they, do they ever burn up and stop existing or do they just suffer forever? And I go, that's a really horrible thing to think about and I'd rather not even think about it, to be honest with you. I don't even like thinking about it. But we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get to that later in the, in the chat because I have a few thoughts about the whole idea of the soul being immortal. Paul argues that there's going to be a general resurrection of the dead and the reason that Paul thinks that all Christians are obligated to believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Do you think people believe in that nowadays? I don't know. I've never polled people. Because I think what Christians generally think is, I'm going to heaven. And I don't know if... Because if, the clear Bible teaching is there will be a resurrection of the dead. Paul argues that there will be a general resurrection of the dead. And he reasons like this. Jesus was raised from the dead... Therefore, there is such a thing as the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is raised as the firstborn from the dead. Just as there was a first, first man, and from him, everyone else became as we are under the conditions of sin, but also like mortal. He is of the dust, so we're gonna bear, we, we bear his image. We are of the dust and we return to dust. But then he says, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, came from heaven and he bears the divine image, and he has immortality, and through his resurrection, he became a life-giving spirit, and just as we've borne the image of the man of the dust and died, we will bear the image of the man from heaven, and we'll be resurrected, and we'll receive a glorified body like his. And that's like the whole basis of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul freaking out because they're denying the resurrection, and he's pulling out his hair and freaking out and going, guys, Jesus is raised, you will be raised, and when will it happen? When he returns, he's going, this is our whole thing. What, how can you deny this? This is our whole thing. The reason that Paul freaks out about the resurrection, the coming resurrection, is 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That, that's actually where he's pushing that whole chapter to. Guys, if Jesus isn't raised, we don't have hope. And that means all our lives banking on him, trusting in him, 
are for nothing, and every sacrifice we ever made for him will be coming to nothing. But if he was raised, then we know we will be raised. We know he's really Lord if he was raised, not just a crucified, rejected, false Messiah, but rightly the true, accepted, validated, vindicated, chosen Messiah, and that what he said and promised us is really going to happen. If he is who he says he is, then our labor in the Lord is never in vain. So he's, he's anchoring our practical daily sacrifices for him in our future expectation. And he's anchoring our future expectation in his past achievement. Some people used to say, uh, I encountered this in, in seminary. Well, I'm going to use a, a voice, so forgive me if you don't like my voices. Well, actually, Tim, the uh, immortality of the soul is a Greek idea. And I go, that sounds like a false dichotomy to me. False dichotomy is when you're trying to make me choose one of these options, but in reality, both of them are biblical, Mm -hmm. right? Like either I can save souls or I can make life better for souls on earth. Wait a minute, hold up. We're called to do both, you know? You know, either I can be biblical or I can be charismatic. Well, hold up. Wait, what? No, I'm called to be biblical and charismatic. What are you talking about? Either we can just get souls saved or we can disciple people. What are you talking about? False dichotomies. Either we can recycle or make money. We can't do both. What are you talking about? Why can't we make money and take good care of our planet? That's silly. That's just silly. You really got me thinking about that lithium ion thing. They're just bad. They're bad for the environment. Anyway, okay, so some said, okay, immortality of the soul, that's a Greek idea. The Hebrew idea is, is resurrection from the dead. And here are some passages that, that I look at and I go, okay, yes, I believe in resurrection of the dead, but, but also the immortality of the soul. Here's some. Luke 23, 43, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Was that thief with him that same day in paradise? Logic 101. Okay. If Jesus said it, it was done. So wouldn't that be the immortality of the soul or at least some sort of afterlife? Body died and he was with Jesus in paradise. Here's another one. Angels gathered Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. That's Luke 16. Jesus tells a story. Most of the time he'll say, and it'll say, and Jesus told him a parable. This time it doesn't say Jesus told him a parable. It just says there was a rich man and there was a poor man who lived at his gate named Lazarus and he would beg. And that rich man had awesome stuff in this life and that poor man had nothing in this life. Then they both died. And the poor man, Lazarus, was gathered by the holy angels and taken to Abraham's bosom. But the rich man was taken to a place of great torment and suffering. And the rich man was in so much suffering that he said to Lazarus, can you please just have, or to, to, to who is it? Yeah, please. Well, I'll just send him with, with a finger dipped in water and just drop it on my tongue. It's, and the, no, there's a big chasm in between us. Well, then send somebody to go warn my brothers so that they don't end up in this terrible place. No, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Now, it doesn't say that's a parable. It just says, now there was a man. Isn't that an interesting idea? Some of Jesus' stories he made up as metaphors, that one just seems like an actual thing that happened. 
I'm just saying it's not either resurrection of the dead or immortality of the soul. It can be both. It can be both. Just because there will be a resurrection of the dead doesn't mean those people don't exist until the resurrection of the dead. They exist right now. Uh, Paul. Why? Can you see where where I'm... This is, this is the walk, isn't it? Yeah. This is the walk for you, and this is the walk for me. Yeah. This is the walk for Bill Johnson, buried his wife and his dad from cancer. and This is the walk for every one of us. Yeah. That's why I said, is there a question? Because if there is, I probably can't yeah, answer it. There's a why there. There's a <laughs> why <laughs> that I can't get answered. Okay. You didn't ask this question, but... So my question is less, why did that happen? Because, I mean, I have my version of those events and, you know, that I could refer to as well. Yeah. The real question is, how do I live now yeah. with this? I don't have answers to questions like, why would God allow? That's way beyond my pay grade. Right, yeah. I'm just a dude. Yeah. But my question that is not above my pay grade is, how do I live now? Mm-hmm. How do I live with what happened? Yeah. And the best thing I know to do it's first off, cry a lot whenever you need to. And don't let it get bottled up. And that's harder than, I made that sound simple and easy. It ain't simple and easy. It ain't simple and easy to grieve. Grieving is, is a spiritual action and it's deeply healthy. And then the other thing is be thankful for them. Instead of being like, I can't believe you took them or what have you. It's like, no, God gave you them for this long. You had this incredible, va- thank God you gave me them for this long. Thank God for baby Olive for five and a half months. She's, she would be in between Zion and, and um, uh, Layla. She would be in between Zion and Layla now. But thank God we had her five and a half months. Instead of, how dare you, God? Because there's no wisdom in that. I know there's no life in that. That's not going to help me. That's not going to help anybody. It's an unanswerable question. It's just letting my heart go down. A, but thank God for, insert the names of the people that we had in our life that are so incredibly valuable to us that we miss them like crazy. They're such a blessing that their absence is painful. Yeah. And, but thankfulness is a part of the process of grieving too. I don't have the, the, the stuff beyond my pay grade. Yeah. Why? But how do I now live with this? That's, that is my pay grade. That is my assignment. Yeah. And here I am, and I'm, I'm, I'm going, I trust you, God. You look just like Jesus. I trust you, Father. You've given me eternal life. You didn't take them from me. You received them. You're keeping them for me. These are the things I pray out. But I don't have to like any of that. Right. I don't have to like any of it. I'm not, allowed to, I'm not even allowed to make friends with death, according to Paul. It says it's the last enemy. Exactly. So it's an enemy. Yeah. I don't have to be okay with no, death. I don't like I'm it. I'm not okay with it. <laughs> so... So the things that break my heart apparently break his heart even more. Right. And that, that emotionally helps me. He cares about people way more than I do. When I start having problems with God is when I think that I am the one who loves the people who are hurting or who are being like, like he loves your mom way more than you do. He loves your mom more than, more than yeah. you, you know. He loves them girls more than you guys do. Yeah. So anyway, we're still on the thing of immortality of the soul. Paul says, I'm torn between the two. Am I going to live? Am I going to die? I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Philippians 1.23. I desire to depart the body and be with Christ, which is better. Well, that's it. That's an interesting 
I, I love that passage. I want that passage to be so stinking real to me that death is stripped of all fear. I don't mean dying. Dying can be painful and annoying. Like, uh, <laughs> I don't want my death to be slow and painful. Make it quick and painless. You know what I mean? Like a bug on a windshield, just flying along, and then all of a sudden you're in heaven. You know, and then, and then you're, in, you're like, you're in heaven, and, the other, and, you're, and Jesus is like, how'd you get here early? And, I don't know, I was just flying along, and I blew up. <laughs> like, make it like that, right? I don't, you, you don't have to like dying, but the idea of being with Jesus should be so, I want it to be so real for me, and so, so mm, that like Paul, that like say he gets a terminal illness diagnosis from a doctor, a lot of us be so freaked out. Paul's like, hey, Hey, I know. Well, I have a hard time with that. And I would like to switch over to Paul, the Paul camp. That's what I would like to do, Carl. You don't have a hard time with that. When I sang that Jason Upton song, I knew Rusty disagreed, where he says, he says, everybody leaves the garden. Everybody needs a home. Everybody's scared of dying. But no one wants to roll away the stone. And I, I felt in my spirit, Rusty ain't scared of dying. Well, I was singing it. See? I knew it. As soon as I sang that lyric, I feel Rusty going, that ain't true. I ain't scared at all. Take me now. <laughs> see, I know this man. That's hilarious. And you too. You're like, what are you talking about? Come on. Come on. Every 16-year-old kid praying against the rapture. <laughs> yeah. Take me when I'm 40. Because they think 40 is like so old. This is good as dead. Anyway, to be absent from the body is pre- to be present with the Lord, and the martyred saints are under the throne crying out for God to vindicate their sacrifices. So all that I'm saying is, when we die, our spirit immediately goes to be with God. Immediately. But later, when Jesus returns, it goes, it takes on a resurrection body. So it can be both. It can be the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. Now, um, the way that the Greeks came to the idea of the immortality of the soul is a little weird. I t- see, I'm trying, I'm trying to check an imaginary watch that's behind me on the ground. I'm over time. All right, maybe we'll, maybe we'll continue this at a different time. But I was going to just, well, the best part's still at the end, so we'll do it at a different time. I put, I put the best part at the very end thinking, don't start with your best points, because that's not, you want to make sure it's, the dessert is after the meal, right? Here's just a weird thought process, like Socrates or whoever, they said, here's how you know I have an immortal soul. If you cut my hand off, I'm still me. If you cut my arm off, I'm still me. If you cut my legs off, I'm still me. If you cut my body in half and I'm still alive, I'm still me. Therefore, me is not the same as my body. Therefore, my, my real me is immaterial. And therefore, you can't cut me. Therefore, my soul is immortal. And I was like, mm, I don't follow your logic. If you started with the head part of that whole metaphor breaks down, do you know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Then the lights turn off. Um, here's what I'm trying to say. There's only one being that is, Im- is, that is actually immortal in and of himself. Your soul's not immortal because like, it's just made of something that can't die. That's, a, that's hogwash. That's a dumb idea. God is the only being that by nature is eternal. He's the only one. So if, if we have immortality, we have it as a gift from him. 
Because people be all like, oh, the soul's immortal. I'm like, mm, no, the soul can be granted immortality by the one who is immortal. So then that raises the question like, um, so could souls be destroyed in hell so that they actually no longer exist? And there are some, not a lot, but some Christians nowadays who believe that the soul and body will be destroyed in the lake of fire and they will simply cease to exist. And to those people, I would say, I sure hope you're right. Because that, that, the whole idea of eternal conscious torment is so terrifying and, and unpleasant that I hope you're right. Now, up to now, I'm still convinced you're wrong. But for the sake of the people there, I sure hope you're right. Either way, I agree with the one guy who said, hell's hot forever's a long time and I'd rather not go, so... There's so much more I want to talk about. I want to talk about soul sleep and why I don't believe in it. I want to talk about uh, the gospel is adoption and that, when the, that the full adoption we're waiting for is our bodies. The fullness of our adoption is when we actually get resurrection bodies. Sometimes when someone's adopted, it's easy for people to, to go, oh, you were rejected by those people. That's not the way the Bible views it. You were, you were chosen. Yeah. To be an orphan and not be chosen is, is the thing that's destructive. To be adopted is to be wanted. In fact, we are adopted, and that is the gospel. It's the sweetness of the gospel. It's the target of the gospel. It's the, it's the, it's the honey in the comb of the gospel. We are the children of God. We've been adopted in. It's the bullseye of the target. And then Paul's going... And we actually, creation is groaning. And what is it groaning for? It's groaning, waiting for the revealing of God's kids that he's adopted. And then the spirit inside of us is groaning. And we're groaning. And we're groaning is because we're waiting for something. And what, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the full, the full reveal of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. When I finally take off mortality and I get the same body my big brother has, now we get to see not just me, but the whole creation will finally be liberated and set free and will enter the glorious freedom of the children of God. So when we get our bodies, the whole rest of the creation gets its freedom at the same time. So we're not just going to heaven when we die. We're going to look just like Jesus. Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he no longer looks like a humble servant with a bruised face. He no longer looks like a simple, regular person who you could pass by on the street and not recognize. His hair is glowing. It says his, it says his voice sounds like many waterfalls. Mm. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know what Jesus' voice sounds like. That's crazy. And it says his face shone brighter than the sun. And when I saw him, I fell on the ground as though dead. Okay, that's your brother, and that's what's coming. C.S. Lewis says, if you saw the, next, the saint next to you, what they were going to be in eternity, you would be tempted to worship them. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, and if you could see what somebody's turning into in the other camp, the demonic camp, because hell was not created for people, it was created for the devil and his angels. But who else goes there? Everyone who's serving that kingdom. And they're becoming something too. The saints are, going to be, are becoming something now. But our real self's hid with Christ in God and is going to be a reveal when we receive the fullness of our adoption. The body is transformed. And when it's transformed, vroom, you, 
The universe is transformed. That's a lot in one night. Maybe we'll pick this up later. It's just basic Christian doctrine, I think.